suffering. It's one of the big Christian questions, isn't it? How can God allow for suffering? How can a loving God, one who over and over again tells us how much we, God's people, our beloved, allow so much anguish on earth, up to and including God's own son? I'm not a theologian. I'm an organizer, I'm a writer, I'm a mom, I am a passable alto in the chancel choir at my little church, and I've never been able to figure out an answer that satisfies my own hunger for resolution on this issue, so don't get your hopes up. But I do think this piece of Mark gives us some things to chew on. So let's dig into it. Jesus and his disciples, they're on their big journey. The disciples are really starting to get it. They maybe have sensed for a while what's going on, but finally Jesus has grilled them, gotten it out of them that they knew he was the Messiah. And then, instead of telling them about his battle plans for riding into Jerusalem and liberating the people, he announces that the Messiah is going to undergo a horrific, humiliating, suffering-filled death. What? No! That's not what a Messiah does! The disciples have very serious ideas about what a Messiah does, and that is not it. And Peter, poor Peter, the great misser of points who Jesus loves so much anyway, Peter gets mad. He rebukes Jesus. We don't know what he said exactly, but Jesus was not happy and rebukes him right back. Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Harsh. On a side note, I confess that this passage always pops into my mind when I hear an admonition to be more Christ-like. You want me to swear at my friends because they're not as wise as I am and they miss the point? (laughs) I can do that. But back to Jesus. So Jesus goes on to tell everyone that if they want to truly become his people, they need to take up their cross and follow him. That the way to save their lives is to lay down their lives. statement and to them it's even sort of nonsensical and it is the first time we hear a cross mentioned in mark and probably the first time the disciples would have been hearing it in this narrative and they would have been horrified death by crucifixion was an intentionally shameful painful demeaning death this is not a standard issue hero's death much less the death of a messiah who came to save the world of course jesus is having none of it Too ashamed to die this way? Well, maybe God's ashamed of you then. How about that? So Jesus spoke a lot in parables, of course. He was the great storyteller, but it doesn't seem like he's talking in parables here. He's being pretty serious. He seems to be saying pretty clearly that, folks, this is the real threat. They will demean us, and they will humiliate us, and they will cause us horrifying pain, and they might even kill us. And that, my friends, is not the end of our story. But that brings us back to the initial question, right? Why is suffering a part of this? Why did God, becoming incarnate and living a full human life, need to die like this. I, of course, still do not have an answer, but I think maybe we can find the seed 
in the idea of the crucified peoples of history. This was an idea put forth by the Salvadoran martyr Father Ignacio Ayacuria. He was killed in the late 1980s, and he talked about this, about the crucified peoples of history. It's important to note that it's peoples, plural, because the crucified peoples of history are generally not just one person who underwent terrible things, but these whole classes of people, these whole groups of people who were treated as an underclass and who were tormented as such. So many people throughout time have been subject to humiliation at the hands of those in power, whether it was governmental power or religious power or or just wealth. Sometimes it was one at a time, but really this like en masse torture of people. We've seen it over and over again. Humans are, if nothing else, dependable on this point. The great theologian James Cone famously pulled together the cross and the lynching tree, both places of torture, of pain, of degradation, all intended to terrify and keep down an oppressed underclass. Cone says, The cross is a paradoxical religious symbol because it inverts the world's value system with the news that hope comes by way of defeat, that suffering and death do not have the last word, that the last shall be first and the first last. Friends, this is the good news. And yet, here we are, here I am at any rate, I shouldn't speak for all of us, tapping all the way into my inner Peter and thinking, wait a minute, wait, whoa, whoa, too much. I can try to argue my way out of the big sacrifices by arguing that the modern world is different, it's way more complex, I'm certainly not going to be one of those weirdos who drags a big wooden cross around, this is all just too strange. But then I see... Yet another body in the street, murdered by the state. And I see the news telling me, oh, he was no angel. Even though he was a teenager who'd never done anything wrong. And some folks are going to recoil at this insinuation. Oh, so you want to say that every kid who gets shot by a cop is basically Jesus? Well... Yeah, I kind of do want to say that. How else are we going to interpret that we're all made in the image of God? What else would we mean by that which you have done to the least of these you've done to me? So what does this mean for us? Does this mean that we all need to go get ourselves murdered violently by the state? No, of course it doesn't. But it does mean that if we do the work that is needed to disrupt these patterns of violence, no matter how non-violently we do it, we will also become targets of some sort. And guess what? That's not an excuse. In fact, it's a guidepost by which we can direct the organizing work and activism that we do. Are we disrupting the systems of violent empire so much that we are making that empire nervous? Are we shaking the rulers at their core? Are our modern-day Pontius Pilots ready to wash their hands the whole deal? Then good, we're on the right track. And that 
is terrifying. But we've got God right there with us. That still doesn't answer why does suffering exist. I'm not even sure it gets us closer. I hate any hint of an idea that martyrdom, beyond the singular martyrdom of Christ himself, is somehow necessary, because I don't think it is. But I think we could and must create a world in which at least most of this stops happening. And until we do, and yeah, that's going to mean denying ourselves and picking up that particular cross. God will always be there with us in the humiliation, in the pain, in the degradation. And violence, and empire, and even death will not get the last word. Amen. Thanks for listening to Be Still and Go, Meditations for the Movement. This episode was written and recorded by Megan Romer. Megan is a storyteller, opinion slinger, organizer, and liberationist Christian. And I know that you've all probably just met her right here in this episode for the very first time, but isn't she incredible? I am so glad we all got to hear from her. Now, I only really know Megan through Twitter, but her tweets are also incredible. You should absolutely go follow her at Megan Romer. It's all one word, M-E-G-A-N-R-O-M-E-R. But I'm glad that she could offer this reflection for us all today. And be sure to come back tomorrow because we'll have another episode waiting for you. Because that's how this podcast works. A new episode every day from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday. You can find them all on our website at trcnyc.org slash be still and go, or just search for be still and go in your favorite podcast app. Say, Alexa, play be still and go. Whatever you do to listen to podcasts, it's there. But like I said, they're all on our website. You can just head over right now and catch up on a few episodes you missed and get ready for tomorrow's episode. We'll talk to you then.